Well, hey, Grace Chapel, good to be with you all today. Wherever you are, whatever's happening in your life, we're glad you're with us, and I uh, hope you sense God's presence as we begin our new series together. So what did Jesus save you from? If you're a Christ follower, I'd like you to think back to that moment you first turned to God in faith. What need or longing prompted you to do that? And maybe it was guilt. Maybe you suddenly realized that you'd made a mess of things. You became aware of people you had hurt along the way, or maybe simply how far short you had fallen of the person you wanted to be. And so you turned to God and asked him to forgive you and give you a fresh start, and he did. Or maybe it was loneliness that prompted you to turn to Christ. Maybe for whatever reason, you were just feeling unknown, unloved, unwanted, disconnected, as if you had no place in this world. And then you discovered that God knew you and loved you from before the foundation of the world, and that Jesus laid down his life for you. And by faith, you became a child of God and a member of his family. Or maybe it was despair, sadness, grief, a sense of hopelessness for your life or for this broken world in which we live. But you turned to God and found in God a sense of hope and promise for your life and for the world, a chance to get up and begin again. Guilt, Loneliness, despair, could have been any number of needs that prompted you to turn to God and ask him to save you. Even if, you, even if you're not a Christ follower, chances are some of those needs and longings have surfaced in your life. Now, in my case, I was only five years old when I first turned to Christ, so I didn't have a chance to make a mess of things yet. Wasn't exactly saved from a life of sin and degradation at five years old. I wasn't sad. I was a pretty happy kid. I wasn't, alone. I wasn't lonely. I had a family who loved me. But when a traveling evangelist came through town for the closing night of vacation Bible school and asked us if we wanted to receive Jesus into our hearts and live with him forever in heaven, I said yes. In fact, I practically ran forward at the invitation. I didn't know a lot at that point in life, but I, I knew that Jesus loved me. I knew that he was strong and kind and good. And if I could have him in my heart with me now and forever, well, why not? I signed up. So what Christ saved me from, I suppose, was simply a life without God, without the wonder and the joy and the purpose and the connection that I have found in Christ and his people. He saved me from a life that would have been too small. So any one of these things, and maybe any combination of them, might have been the things that brought us to Christ. The thing that I'm trying to get at here is that when we first came to faith in Christ, when we asked him to save us, it was about us. It was about our need, about our longing, having our sins forgiving, finding a place where we could fit in, having our fears and hopes addressed. We had a relationship with God now and forever. And most of our songs of praise and worship and hymns, they celebrate that. I once was lost and now was found, was blind, but now I see. And that's all good. But what we probably didn't understand, what no one probably told us, or we weren't ready to hear, was that we weren't just saved from something. We were saved for something. It wasn't just about the good things God wanted to do for us. It was about the good things God wanted us to do for the world. It was for the good of others that he called us to himself. 
It would be many, many years before I would begin to understand that I was saved for something more than my own happiness and a ticket to heaven. And I'm sad to say that it was many, many, many years and perhaps only in recent years that, that myself and many of my generation have begun to understand fully what it means to be saved for something. And I'll explain more of that as we go along here today. Now, earlier this year, we introduced a new mission statement for our church. We're describing ourselves as a community of people who are discovering life with God for the good of the world. It's a simple way of reminding ourselves and everybody else that we are all on a journey to find life in all of its fullness in relationship with the God who made us, but that we want to live out that life in a way that blesses the people around us as well, both near and far. Now, they say the test of any mission statement is that anyone in the organization could recite it at gunpoint in an elevator. I don't know why that's the test, but that's the test. So that's probably not going to happen to many of us, so I'd like you to imagine yourself for a moment on the sidelines of a soccer game or in the break room at work or maybe at a family reunion after dinner some evening, and someone turns to you and says, hey, you go to Grace Chapel. What's that church all about anyway? What are you going to say? Hopefully, you're going to say, we're all about light, discovering life with God for the good of the world. So that's where we're headed in this series. In, the, in our first series this earlier this winter this year, we talked about roots, and that was all about the first half of that statement, discovering life with God. So we talked about our new identity in Christ. We talked about how to develop a, a life in which we learn to relate to God and hear his voice and speak to him. We talked about surrendering to his leadership. We talked about membership in his family. The idea in that series, Roots, was all about the fact that our life in God, the life of a tree, begins with the roots, with the part of the life that's underground, out of sight. Well, this spring, we'd now like to talk about our fruits that doesn't sound nearly as cool as Roots, so we didn't use that for the title. But you get the idea. This spring, we want to talk about the outward, visible expressions of this faith we have inside. Imagine that you're taking a drive through the New England countryside in February, and you drive past a stand of trees by the side of the road, and one of the kids from the back seat says, Mom, what kind of trees are those? Well, unless you're a botanist, you're probably going to have to say, I don't know, dear. But if you drive past that same stand of trees in October, and there's these round red things hanging heavy from the branches, you can say with confidence, those are apple trees. The fruit is evidence of the life within the tree. Now, so let's begin by asking ourselves a question. As people drive by you as they pass through life, do they know what kind of tree you are? Is it as obvious as an apple tree in October that you are a follower of Christ? Does the fruit of your life reflect the fact that there is life in the roots? So that's where we're headed in our series here. So we've got this bowl of fruit here to kind of fix this image in our mind, and we'll come back to it in just a few moments. For these first two weeks of the series, we're just going to kind of set up the concept, what it means to be for the good of the world, and then in the weeks to follow, we'll get very practical, and we'll talk about how we do good for the world in all the venues of our life, home, work, school, neighborhood, city, and, and on. 
So let's ground this series in a very familiar passage of Scripture to many of us, the passage of Scripture that many of us find very warm and encouraging, but a passage that has an edge to it that we might not have appreciated before. I'm talking about a passage from John chapter 15. It was spoken by Jesus on his final night with his disciples before going to the cross. In fact, we call it the farewell discourse. So before we look at those words in particular, I'd like us to simply hear them as the disciples might have heard them as they were seated around the table for that last supper. And Jesus stood and said to them, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it bears even more fruit. Now you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit apart from me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you do not remain in me, you will be like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you can ask whatever you wish in my name and it will be done. This is for my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept the Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy might be in you and so that your joy might be complete. My command is this. Love one another as I have loved you. You did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So those are some of Jesus' last words to his disciples before going to the cross. Now, a person's last words are important. You might imagine a patriarch or a matriarch, a grandfather, grandmother on their hospital bed with two or three generations of family members gathered all around them. You choose your words very carefully in a moment like that. You say what's most important. And so Jesus turns to a metaphor that would have been very familiar to the disciples, the metaphor of the vine. But he puts a new spin on it. You see, the, the prophets in the Old Testament spoke often about Israel, the nation of Israel, as a vine or a vineyard that God had planted for his glory. But here, Jesus describes himself as the vine. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. And then he adds a new element that wasn't there before, a very personal element. You are the branches, 
he says to his disciples and by extension to all of us, I am the vine, you are the branches. And then he offers three commands, three things he wants them and us to do in his absence. And the first is that we would remain in him, or as some of us learned it, abide in him. Verse 5, remain in me as I also remain in you. In other words, stay close to me. Live every moment of your life in relationship with me. It's a warm and wonderful invitation to a deep and personal relationship with Christ. And it's this command probably that this passage is most famous for, abide in me. The second command is almost as familiar, love one another. Verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Now, these two are warm and, and inviting words. I mean, who doesn't want to love and be loved? We, we want to be close to God's people. We want to belong. So these first two commands are familiar and inviting to us. But there's a third command here. It's not nearly as familiar, and it's not nearly as warm and fuzzy. It's the command to bear fruit. You did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Now, this is undoubtedly the least familiar and the least comfortable of all of these commands. Most sermons I've heard on this passage, most sermons I've preached on this passage have been about those first two, abide in me or love one another, because we want to do those things. They feel like invitations. But this third thing, this is the hardest. But the surprising thing is that it's this third commandment that really is the main point of the passage. It's the first thing Jesus says right out of the gate in verse 2. He talks about bearing fruit. It's the one he mentions the most times, seven times in this handful of verses, he tells us to bear fruit. It's the only one he adds an intensifier to, bear much fruit. And it's the only one that comes with a warning. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And as if that isn't scary enough, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Yikes! It's a heck of a thing to say on your deathbed. It's sounding less like a grandfather speaking to his grandchildren and more like a ruthless CEO barking to his management team. Turns out the father is a greedy gardener. He doesn't just want fruit. He wants more fruit. In fact, he wants much fruit. In fact, he's prepared to take drastic action if there's no fruit. No wonder we like those first two commands better. Now, I think it's worth pointing out here that embedded in this little passage here are our three core commitments as a church. We talk a lot about going, going deeper, getting closer, reaching wider. All three of them are here. Abiding in Christ is all about going deeper. Loving one another is all about getting closer. And bearing fruit is all about reaching wider. All three are equally important. All three are interrelated. But it's this third one, reaching wider, 
that most Christians and most churches struggle with. So before we go any further, we better be sure we understand exactly what it is Jesus is talking about when he tells us to bear fruit. He doesn't give us a definition here, and it's not as immediately obvious as loving one another or remaining in him. So what does it mean? Well, if you're familiar with your Bible, if you've been hanging around church for a long time, your mind probably runs to the fruit of the Spirit passage in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Is that what Jesus is talking about here? A virtuous life, a Christ-like character? Certainly sounds like it. The only thing is Galatians 5 hadn't been written yet. The Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. The Apostle Paul wasn't even a believer yet. So it's kind of getting ahead of ourselves. So maybe what Jesus meant by bearing fruit was converts. I mean, we know he's going to tell his disciples to go into the world and make disciples, so that would make sense. But once again, Jesus hasn't actually said that yet. One of the ways to try to interpret a difficult verse or a difficult phrase is to look at the context. What else is Jesus talking about before and after that might give us a clue? And it turns out, if we back up to chapter 14, Jesus is talking about doing the works of his heavenly Father. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Well, this has possibilities. Jesus is talking about, has just told the disciples that he wants them to be doing what he's been doing. And what's he been doing? Well, he's been healing the sick and feeding the hungry and blessing the children and lifting up the downtrodden and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So, so, so which is it that he's after? Is it Christ-like character? Is it more believers? Is it doing good works? Is it all of the above? We better get it right. If not, we might feel the pinch of the pruning shears along the way. So maybe it'll help if we back up a little bit and think a little bit more about this metaphor Jesus uses of the fruit. We've got to believe that Jesus chose this metaphor on purpose. And when the biblical writers use a, a metaphor, when they tell a story, they're wanting us to use our imaginations, to tease it out, to have some fun with it, to try to understand what's behind that metaphor. So that's why we've kind of gathered up this bowl of fruit here. We've got a nice collection. There are some apples here and some oranges, some grapes, banana. I don't know what this thing, scary thing is here, but anyway, there's a variety of fruits there. So what do these fruits have in common? Well, a few things. For one thing, they're, for the most part, they're, they're pleasing to the eye, right? I mean, they're attractive. They're beautiful. They've got bright colors and, and, and intriguing shapes and curves and lines to them. How many artists have tried to capture the simple beauty of a bowl of fruit? But fruit isn't just beautiful in a bowl. It's beautiful when it's on the trees, and we're just beginning to experience some of that beauty as the cherry trees and the crab apples begin to blossom with the promise of fruit to follow. So fruit makes the world more beautiful. Second thing that's true about all these fruits is that, that they're good for you. I mean, they don't only, not only taste good, they're actually healthy. Doctors tell us we should eat three to five servings of these things a day. But they've got minerals and vitamins and antioxidants and fiber and all kinds of stuff. And I'm sounding like your mother, I know, but 
the truth is fruit makes people healthier. But the most important thing about fruit is that each of these fruits contain seeds of life. Within each one of these fruits is at least a seed and probably many seeds that will produce more trees, that will produce more fruit, that will yield more beauty and more health and more life in the world. You see where I'm going with this. Fruit is good for the world. And maybe that's what Jesus is trying to tell us. He wants us to be good for the world. He wants us to make the world a more beautiful place by our virtuous character and our Christ-like love, including, yes, the fruit of the Spirit. I think he's also saying he wants us to make the world a healthier place by doing the works that he was doing, the works of feeding the hungry and, and, and eradicating disease and and protecting the planet that we've been given. And I believe he's also saying that he wants us to extend an enriched life to the world by, by doing justice and showing mercy and extending compassion to people and ultimately pointing them to the only source of true and eternal life, which is Jesus himself. So yes, it's all of the above. When Jesus tells us to bear fruit, he's talking about living beautiful lives of Christ-like character, He's talking about doing good works that make the world a healthier, safer place. And he's talking about pointing people to him and the life that is found in him. So it turns out Jesus didn't just save us from something. He saved us for something, for the good of the world. Now, I said earlier that it's only been in recent years that I and many other Christ followers of my generation are beginning to understand fully what this means. I'm finding that younger generations of believers, millennials and the like, are, are, are much more engaged with this good of the world kind of vision. And others of us are just perhaps catching on to it. For, for a long time, for a good part of my life, I felt like my only mission as a Christ follower was to preach the gospel to as many people as possible all the while keeping the world at a safe distance so as not to be contaminated or corrupted by it. We used to sing a song at youth meetings and around campfires. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. <laughs> that was the song. We sang it with gusto. The idea seemed to be the whole thing was about escaping this world and bringing as many people as we could with us. But it turns out God loves the world. That he wants us to be in the world. And that he wants us to be for the world, doing what he was doing when he was in the world, making it better making it look more like the world it was meant to be, making it look a little bit more like the kingdom of heaven. I don't know how I and we, many of us, miss this for so long. I mean, it's right there in the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Back in the day, it was very common for preachers when they were giving a, an evangelistic kind of a message 
to tell us to insert our own name in John 3.16. For God so loved Brian that he gave his one and only son to help us understand how very personal it was. And there's something very nice and very true about that. But let's not forget what the verse actually says, that God so loved the world, the whole world, this world. This verse is at the very heart of our gospel-centered faith. This past week, I uh, joined a handful of our Next Generation staff, and we went to a conference down in Atlanta. Some of our kids' town workers, some of our student ministry workers, and we were whooping it up there in Atlanta, as pastors do when they get together. What happens in Atlanta stays in Atlanta, okay? <laughs> um, we didn't get into too much trouble. But one of our speakers at that conference was a pastor from Atlanta, and he was talking about this particular verse, John 3.16, and he pointed out that the very first word of the most familiar verse in the Christian world is for, that God is for the world. I wish I'd thought of that, <laughs> but I'm glad he pointed it out. God is for the world. And so he and his team built, have built their entire church around that simple word. That church is located in, in Gwinnett County, Georgia, and so their mission statement, their tagline is simply for Gwinnett. That's it, two words, for Gwinnett. Doesn't mention God, doesn't mention Jesus or the Bible or the gospel, just for Gwinnett. They decided that they were tired of Christians being famous for what they're against and decided in their county they wanted to be famous for what they were for, that they were for children, that they were for young people, that they were for beauty, they were for life, they were for justice, they were for compassion, they were for the gospel, they were for their neighbors. They actually put that little line for Gwinnett on a little bumper magnet and gave it out to everyone in their church, and there are thousands of them. And the idea was the members could put that on the rear bumper of their car. So when they paid it backward for someone behind the line in them at the drive-thru, the person behind them would know that someone was for them in Gwinnett County. They didn't even put their church name or website on that little magnet, just those two words, for Gwinnett. But it wasn't just about the free coffee or the Chick-fil-A they were buying. This church donates tens of thousands of dollars and tens of thousands of volunteer hours every year, not to the work of the church, but to the work of worthy causes and organizations doing good all over the county. And they do it not because it's good for the church necessarily, but because it's good for Gwinnett. It's good for their world. Now, I am happy to say that we, we have been on to this for a couple of years now here at Grace. We've been talking about missional living and about reaching wider. We've been talking recently about a, a shift in our emphasis from come and see model of ministry to a go and do model of ministry. It's this heartbeat that's behind our finding your go idea, finding your unique contribution to God's work in the world. And it's this idea that's behind our spring serve, now in its third or fourth year, I forget. 
This Saturday, hundreds of us, this Saturday morning, hundreds of us, I hope a thousand of us, will scatter to communities all across greater Boston, Wilmington, Lexington, Watertown, and, and all the communities around us, and we'll scatter simply to do good. We'll be making local parks and playgrounds more beautiful. We'll be preparing and distributing food to people who are hungry. We'll be creating cards and gift baskets for incarcerated people and for women who've been battered and exploited. We'll be painting and making improvements for homeless shelters and transitional housing. We'll be visiting and singing with people who are in assisted living. We'll even be washing people's cars for free. Not your cars, their cars for free. <laughs> and we'll be doing it not primarily to get them to come to our church, but simply to let them know that someone in this world is for them. Because if they can believe that someone is for them, they can begin to believe that God might be for them as well. Now, if all of that doesn't sound like a fun way to spend a Saturday morning, or if this whole idea of doing good sounds scary and uncomfortable and inconvenient, then let me call your attention to one last verse that Jesus spoke in this passage, verse 11. He said, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Friends, we were made for this. We learned that back in Roots. We have been shaped for lives of service. Shaped by God to do good in the world. And when we do that, it brings us joy. It, it makes us feel fully alive and fully ourselves, the people that we were meant to be. Do you know that neuroscientists have discovered recently that when people engage in altruistic behavior, when they do good for others, the pleasure centers of their brain light up. The same pleasure centers that light up over food and sex. There's got to be a joke in there somewhere, but I'm sure it would get me in trouble. So I'm just going <laughs> to keep on moving past it, all right? But think about it this way. How often do we turn to food or sexuality because we want to feel something? We want to feel more alive. We want to feel good. We want to feel like life is coursing through our veins and even through our souls. And, and that's okay. God has given us food and sex in part for those kinds of things. And when we enjoy food in its proper proportions, and when we enjoy sexuality with the right person, it's a wonderful gift of God. But the great news about doing good is that there are no limits. Anyone, anytime, anywhere, for any reason, you can do good. See, unlike donuts, doing good has no calories. <laughs> Zero. In fact, it burns calories when you do good. And unlike casual sex, doing good never hurts anyone, never demeans anyone, never leaves you feeling ashamed or unfulfilled or lonely. There are no limits on the ways and numbers of people for whom you can do good. We heard from another pastor there in Atlanta who's been looking for some simple ways to do this sort of thing. And so recently, he started a simple practice of asking everybody who serves him in the course of a day, do you have anything I can pray for today? 
Simple as that. A cashier, a salesperson, an Uber driver. Do you have anything I can pray for today? He's found that uh, some people say no. A few people don't really appreciate it. Uh-oh. That's odd. <laughs> it's getting odder. <laughs> well, you can still hear me, so I'll just keep going, okay? <laughs> A few people don't appreciate it, but some people are remarkably personal and honest and specific about the things they ask prayer for. And it's changed his way he makes his way through the day. Hey, now we're talking. <laughs> Now we're talking. And he had such a good time telling us stories about this that even listening to him tell stories made us feel more alive, made us feel inspired. And so what happened as I was making my way to church this morning, I found myself pulling into Dunkin' Donuts for a coffee, which honestly I typically don't do on my way to church. And suddenly I was standing there alone in the store with the Dunkin' Donuts server. And so I said, uh, do you have anything I can pray for today? She said, excuse me? <laughs> Gotta remember, this is New England, not Atlanta, okay? <laughs> and so I said again, do you have anything I can pray for today? She said, as a matter of fact, just last night, and she talked about a family member of theirs who had just gone into the hospital, and they didn't understand what was happening, and yes, they would like me to pray, and so I told her I would. Now, I got to tell you, as I pulled out of there, I felt alive. I felt more like the person that God wants me to be, and like the person I want to be, and like the person I, the life I want to live, and so I, I prayed for them. I, I don't know what it's going to mean for her. I know for me, it made me feel more alive. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. We're going to kind of save some of the practical stuff for the weeks to come. Today, I simply wanted to set forth this simple concept that we weren't just saved from something. We were saved for something. We were saved for the good of the world. So let me ask you again the question we asked ourselves at the outset. As people pass by you on their way through life, is it obvious to them that you have the life of Christ in you? Is it as obvious to them as an apple tree in October? And let's remember that our father is a greedy gardener. He wants more fruit. Not just for the good of the world, but for our joy. Are you bearing enough fruit to find real joy? to feel fully alive? The next time you want to feel good, don't buy yourself a donut. Do something for someone. It will not only be good for you, it'll be good for the world. Let's pray. Amen, Lord. We just express our, our joy and our wonder and gratitude at your words spoken to us today. Even though you spoke these words thousands of years ago to a small group in a tiny room, here today you're speaking to us as well. And these words are just as powerful, just as challenging, and just as inspiring. Our prayer, Lord, is that they would be more than just words, but that by your spirit and by our faith, these might become realities 
in the way that we live individually and the way that we live as a community and the way that we serve our campuses and our neighborhoods, our city and the world. So show us what that looks like, Lord, in the weeks to come and even tomorrow as we head out into our world to do good in Jesus' name. Amen.